Hey everyone, welcome to The Weekend Show, where we discuss big issues and big questions that come up as we're reading through the Bible this year. We also aim to uh, discuss some of your questions as well, because you guys send us in your questions, and some of them are really hard-hitting and really good, and they make for some really good conversation. Now, if this is your first time here, my name is Corey, and I'm joined by Matlock, my husband. Hey, Matlock. Hey, I'm back. You're back? You're back? <laughs> and there's some pretty decent... Yes, there are. Today. Pertaining to specifically Isaiah 36 to Isaiah 53, which was what we we're supposed to read this week. If you didn't, that's okay. But there's big questions pertaining to this. Even our big question is a viewer question because it's so big and long. So, yeah. yes. So we'll get into it. There's a whole bunch of the nature of good and evil and on um, even the forbidden chapter, uh, uh, Isaiah 53. So we'll get into it. It sounds so mysterious. The forbidden chapter. Yeah, I, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> I, know, I love it. So let's start off, Corey. I'm going to introduce. We'll just get right into it. Sure. If you don't yeah. Mind. Let's, let's, there's lots. There's so a lot. So in. we got to we got to do. I love ground. Isaiah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> this pertains to Isaiah 43. Okay. Yes. It's a viewer question I'm gonna flip there. from Charles. Isaiah 43 verse 10 says, "Ye are my witnesses," saith the Lord, "and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am He." Before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. That last line, mm -hmm. neither shall there be after me. Does that mean God has an end? Mm-hmm. No. All right. I said, mm-hmm, but I, but I mean, no. I was like, wait, <laughs> I said, mm-hmm. No. <laughs> I was, mm-hmm, like agreeing with, yes. yes. That, that's, it's curious. Let's take a look at that. Um, all right. So... This is a saying that God is using um, to basically say, no, there are no other gods on par with me. And he says this several times in Isaiah in different ways. So what I understand, um, the neither shall there be after me, I understand that to mean after my hypothetical formation, not after my untimely demise or timely demise, right? So, because the Bible, it, it, even in Isaiah, speaks about the eternal nature of God, the never-ending nature of God. So, uh, before me, no God was formed. So, there is no God before God because he is eternal. And that nor will there be one after me, after my what? After my formation, right? So, this is using human terms of before and after to, 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 give us an insight onto into God's nature, which right. of course is a little bit derived because God is eternal. So he has no beginning or end, but hypothetically, if he had a beginning, no God was formed before his formation and no God was formed after his I, I formation. I think too, just in human terms, because we have a beginning and end, how do you describe something that's eternal? Uh, so you often see God as the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Mm -hmm. So he's he's not saying, you know, you know, when you say Alpha and Omega and beginning and end, he's not saying birth and death. I have a birth point and a death point. Yeah. Right. So it's but you're using these two things. I am the beginning and the end. In other words, being both of these things makes you beyond those things. Sure. And right. and I mean, we even use similar language when we talk about, we love talking about the unique individual individuality of every human now, now right. that we've kind of looked at DNA and how right. crazy it is, right? And how complicated it is. So you, my parents can say to me, Corey, there was never a Corey before you were born, not like you. And there's never going to be a Corey exactly like you after you're born, right? right? In the same way that we can we can say that, we even use it of ourselves. So how much right. more than of God? But God is saying, Look, there, there's no being that's on par yes. with who I am, neither before nor, nor after, even if that was possible. Yes. Which we know through the rest of the teaching of Scripture, it's, it's, not, it's not possible. It's not possible, no. There is no beginning or end. There is no, yeah, that's exactly right. Now, while we have a beginning, right, and through Christ don't have an end through eternal life. Right. Um, there is, there, I, I don't think the concepts of, you know, a beginning and end, if you say that I'm the beginning and the end, yeah. means that I have a beginning and an end. Because yes. we all do. It's kind of like if that's what he was saying, like why even say that? It's like, of course, we have a beginning and end, right? Yes. Right. But he's saying, I am the beginning and the end. In other words, like he's above it. So I think that's uh, yeah. 
And, yeah. and it, like we see God using this kind of language and using human terms to help us understand these concepts over and over. Yeah. Um, and he's saying the same thing over and over. Like as you keep yes. going, I even I am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no savior. Um, if you if you bump down from verse to verse 13, yes, and from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Does that mean that God is just from ancient days? No, he's saying, even when you look as far back as you can, it was me who did these things. It was me who saved. It was me who created, um, revealed, saved, and proclaimed is specifically what he's speaking yes. about in that in that context. So we see human language being used about God and human understanding being used about God because it's a human book, right? We're trying, God is using our language through the prophet to try to help us understand these concepts about who he is. Right. But it's basically claiming his uniqueness and his superiority over all other so-called gods that right. Israel was currently engaged in also worshiping. So like the, mytholo the mythological beings of, you know, Greek mythology, Zeus, right? Mm -hmm. Kronos, all these guys, they were created. And um, that's the idea. It's like these, these fallen angels, these lowercase g gods were created beings. They are not the beginning and the end. Yeah. And when you look at the like the Mesopotamian pantheon, they did believe in lesser gods and gods that were able to usurp power. Yeah. So from their cultural understanding, this would also be God saying, I am not a lesser God that usurped power. I am the yeah. God, the only God, and no one can usurp me, and no one is the same as I am. And I was thinking, that's the reason why I brought up Zeus and Kronos, because Zeus overthrows Kronos. Right. And it's the same way. And actually, what's really interesting, if you look at a lot of those old mythologies, they all involve a lesser God overthrowing the most powerful God. Maybe kind of like- I wonder- if there's like a character in the Bible that's trying who to do like that. tries to take over God's throne yeah. and ruin his creation <laughs> and get glory for himself or something. I wonder what that's all heading to. But it's really interesting that all those old Mesopotamian uh, mythologies, uh, even uh, Mediterranean, and it go goes on the list, they all have this lesser God overthrowing the supreme God. Yeah. As if he is a, you know equal to them. Mm -hmm. And I just find that it is amazingly fascinating because against the grain, the biblical story is actually – no, that guy loses, mm -hmm. which is like it kind of goes against your nature of the underdog. Like human nature is like, oh, I want the, I, I want to win. Like I'm the small guy, I'm going to beat the big guy. But it's like, oh, hold on a second, that's going completely against human nature. Anyways, we're getting off topic. Well, the mythology he 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 sort of does for a long time, but right. like Baal is a usurper. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot there. <laughs> I know. So it's really interesting. Yeah, how uh, the demonic forces work their way into other religions. It's interesting. Very. But okay, let's move on. Yes. Because I think we've... Beaten that down. Yes. All right. This one is for you, Matlock. Sure. Uh, this, is, this is from Helen. It's about Isaiah 45, verse mm. 7. And she says this. Isaiah 45, verse 7 reads, I form the light and create darkness. I make <coughs> peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. That's the King James Version. Right. Isaiah seems to be clearly saying that God created evil. Is that the case? And what is the purpose of God creating evil? Okay. This is a big question. This is basically the big question, but it's not the big question, believe it or not. I could, I thought about this being the big question because it's actually such a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to go to it right now. Uh, verse 7. So apart from this is actually God speaking to Cyrus, right? And here, what you have is... God's uh, uh, speaking through Isaiah to speak to Cyrus about how powerful God is. We were just talking about who God is, how powerful he is. It's like, despite your gods, like I'm bigger, basically, and I knew you were coming, and he calls him by name. Now, in this, so that's the reason why he says, I formed the light and I and created the darkness. Now, in this, we should, a couple things to keep in mind. One, the word uh, evil that's used here is ra. Now, there's a rolling R there. I'm not going to pronounce it. I'm not, I'm not a Hebrew. I'm not going to pronounce it. I don't speak Hebrew. It's just Ra. And that word Ra can also mean calamity. So when it says, yeah. I make peace and I create evil, he's saying, I make peace and I make calamity. Yeah, um, chaos, disaster. Right. And when you when you check other English translations, they pick up on that parallelism because yes. it's light and darkness, peace, and evil is not the natural opposite to peace. It's destruction. That's it's right. It's warfare. That word- peace, and war. Yes, exactly. Now that word can be used for moral evils. Yep. Right? 
um, and, and as much as it can be used for natural evils. But we see this with Sodom and Gomorrah when judge when God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, he has burning sulfur and brimstone. In other words, uh, he's using a natural, what we would call a natural evil, but he's using a natural disaster to destroy these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about last time about Pompeii. So it's like you have these things where it happens, judgment happens in this way. So God's saying, I can give you peace or I can judge you basically mm-hmm. uh, in the way, in that way. Especially so th- in this context, because he's speaking to Cyrus yes. of Persia, who is the Cyrus the Great of history, who did what? He brought disaster, warfare specifically. He brought warfare and not only took over, managed to take over the Neo-Babylonian Empire, but then empire expand. Yes. And bring warfare and judgments to places that had had peace. Yes. So especially in this context, I I think the other English translations are very justified in their translation of disaster. Yeah, I I think so too. and also, too, another thing to be to keep in mind here is the word create. Now, depending how you think, some people might think God created like evil to be like a substance that like exists and created. You know, uh, Satan didn't fall, but he was like, created in his evil state the way it was. The word create there is not ex nihilo. It's not from nothing. It's not creating evil out of nothing. Um, the word there is bara. And it really does also re- refer to just making things out of the currently existing things. So... I think the, the appropriate word there is make. And we would say you make a chair. That doesn't mean you're making the chair out of nothing. You're making a chair out of wood and things that currently exist. So you're putting things together and that, to form a desired result. Um, so it's not creating evil like out of you know thin, like <laughs> absolute nothingness, as if God's creating sin and stuff like that. The idea here is that God's permitting, by making these situations happen like calamity, he's permitting these things to happen. Mm-hmm. So, and by, so de facto, by his permission... Therefore, he's the one who allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is the only way to, to see it, in my view. But. And importantly, in this chapter, in the context, he's he's going through all these things. He's, he starts with the light and the darkness, peace and disaster. But then it goes on and he talks about how he, he um, causes it to rain. He... Um, he makes children be birthed. He made the earth. He made mankind. He made the heavens. Right. And then he goes, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. Not morally straight, but like physically he's going to be able to take kingdoms. And God is claiming control over this. So he's saying it's not because Cyrus is how history remembers him. It shouldn't be Cyrus the Great. It should be Yahweh the Great because God is causing this to be done. So here in Isaiah 45, God is claiming this is a movement of him. Right. Specifically. Yes. So. Yeah, no, for sure. And so basically he's talking about his sovereignty over the nations. he's, He's bringing judgment. Right. And he's bringing restoration importantly for his people. Yes. So. And end. Through judgment for other nations, he's bringing an end to the judgment of his people. Yes. So what's important here to also, not just sovereignty over nations, but he's also talking about sovereignty over cosmos. Yeah. Um, so because he does say light and darkness, right? Yeah. I made the light and the darkness. I made peace and, and disaster. So when you think about that, okay, so that light and darkness contrast is used throughout of scripture. Oh, to represent yeah. good and evil. It yeah. always has that connotation. And that those are the great uh, moral uh, dichotomies that mm-hmm. exist in the world. Um, so with that in mind... It's like, well, by naturally creating light, you effectively create darkness by those, right, who don't want right. the light. And Jesus talks about this in John 3. I've come uh, to bear witness about the light, and those who are of darkness didn't want the light. Mm-hmm. They wanted, basically, they didn't want to reveal their deeds. They want, they liked their evil deeds so much that they didn't want to join the light. Yeah. So it's kind of like it has nothing to do necessarily with, oh, he's made light, it cr- created darkness and evil in and of itself, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily negate free will is what I'm saying. Um, so that's, I just want to make that clear. Now, with that, there's a bigger part to this question. What is the purpose of God, you know, uh, permitting evil? And I think that gets into even the big question a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think, so you don't want to go too far into it. Don't want it. to go too far into it. <laughs> but uh, I think there is a purpose for it. I think in the, in the short-term sense of things, um, as I said before, God created us with free will, Right. And uh, I think he had morals uh, and he is loving and he wants us to love back. And he wants, he didn't want us to be, everyone always talks about this, this is why they want robots, right? Uh, like he, he could have made us rocks, right? Mm-hmm. 
rock. That's not really love. If we're just rocks, it's not loving. Um, so he's trying to keep uh, uh, everything that's like static. He wants us to move. Our free will is a, a moving thing. So with that in mind, uh, if we're moving, if we're in this world with free will, with the opportunity or the um, – we're prom- not permitted. Print is kind of a weird word to use, but essentially the capacity to fall into temptation, into sin, and to do evil, and to be and to fall into iniquity. We're doing perpetual evil consciously, not just you know uh, mistakenly, but consciously doing a heinous evil. Um, God saying that there's a, the purpose of this is that through free will. Uh, this is I'm going to use a, an argument from evangelical philosopher Clay Jones. Essentially, is that when come judgment day. God's using this time of refinement for when we enter heaven. Because Clay Jones argues that we have free will in heaven. So the point here is that we're using this time to hate evil so much that come judgment day, we are able to see uh, basically not fall in heaven. Because we will not want to, having been through the heinous evil that we see uh, Mm -hmm. upon us. So basically this is like a trial period, so to speak. Um, that we're moving through uh, through these times of suffering and of pain and of um, evils forced upon us and also evils we might do to others to teach us something for uh, the new creation. New yeah, yeah. And see, I, I think that's very much needs to be relegated to the big question because, yes. I, because I think specifically here, I understand that Helen is asking that big question, yes. but because of the context of this question, it's, it's, in Isaiah 45, I don't believe it's saying that God created moral evil. Right. I believe this is this is saying God makes times of peace and he makes times that's of exactly warfare. That's exactly what he's saying, yes. And in I think based off the context of the chapter, that's what it is. Right. And then the, why then is God creating times of peace and times of disaster or times of warfare in this chapter? And the answer to that is God is bringing a time of warfare to the land during the time period of Cyrus to bring judgment to moral evil, human moral evil that has happened in the nations. And by bringing that judgment on the Babylonian Empire specifically, because Cyrus was going to come in and take over the Neo-Babylonian Empire and turn it into his Persian Empire, So he's bringing judgment on the Babylonian Empire and by so doing is ending the judgments of the remnant of Israel and Judah, allowing them to escape their exile and go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. So in this context, why is God creating evil, which should properly be seen as creating warfare, not moral evil here, He's creating warfare to bring judgment to evil and to end a period of punishment for Israel and Judah, at least the remnant. Right. Like in this and, context. And, oh, now, yes. there is a greater question of, course. We'll of get the into problem it. of evil, but that's right. for the big question. Yes, that's fair. And But I will say, <laughs> yes. But even with that, him creating warfare, again, that idea is that like he's not like there are other beings who have self-control here. They could mm-hmm. say... Well, I don't want to go to war. I don't want to kill people. But they're not. Right. So the point here is he's that like utilizing he's it. utilizing he's it. He's mobilizing it. Exactly. For so his purposes. And that word bra permits those those wars. So it's not just create. Yeah. Like there's there's broader uh uh connotations with the word. Anyways. Fair enough. Let's move on. Corey, I'll ask you the next question. Okay. All right. This has to do with the forbidden chapter. Isaiah 53. Yeah. Is the suffering servant in Isaiah about Jesus? Yes. Dun, dun, dun. The million dollar question. That's right. The life eternal question. <laughs> um, so, of course, Christians believe, yes, that Isaiah 53 is absolutely describing the work of Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel, as the Savior of the world, the suffering servant, <coughs> um, uh, you know, Verse four, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it it goes on and on. Of course, yes, Christians absolutely believe that Isaiah 53 and, and beyond, like earlier and after when Isaiah is describing the servant of God, many times it is describing Christ. Now, this is not the way that this chapter is viewed in Judaism. The servant of God is believed uh, in Judaism proper, as far as I understand, um, to be referring to Israel as a corporate nation. Now, there's some trouble in here because while Isaiah does refer to Israel and Jacob, as the servant of God, there seem to be really personal elements in here. Like, uh, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So talking about how corporately Israel and Judah have gone astray, but there's an individual or there's someone that this is being put on. That line is huge because that pretty much divides the national Israel from the person Israel. Yeah. Right. So it's like that's huge. And also verse nine, and they made his grave with the wicked and w- and with a rich man in his death, mm-hmm. although he had done no violence mm-hmm. and there was no deceit in his mouth. Can you say Israel did no violence and was no deceit in his mouth? Yeah, no. You th- can't. This whole book of Isaiah is accusing them of being very deceitful <laughs> and very yes. violent, both physically violent, yes. but, but spiritually violent as well. That's exactly right. So what's really interesting here is that you actually have, now there is precedence we talked about before the show, Isaiah 44, there is precedent for this idea, just so people understand, that uh, Jacob and Israel, Israel itself is a servant. Yeah. It is described as a servant. Yes. But there's... Two servants happening here. Yeah. It's, it's very clear. So you have uh, the national servant and you have Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah servant, intermingled together mm-hmm. uh, as one. And um, we, you see this even in the New Testament, right? People describe, uh, you talked about the book of Matthew, how he describes Jesus as Israel. Okay. And, so that was before the show we talked about that. Yeah, yes. So these folks well, don't know that we talked about that. I already said that. I said before the show. Okay. I could have sworn I said that. If I didn't, I you apologize. Did. You Either. did, but it was a little bit earlier. I just wanted oh, to, okay. yes. to clarify All right, yeah. that we see, we see the gospel of Matthew, the author of Matthew, very clearly is portraying Jesus as the embodiment, the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. So that's why Matthew records, for example, Christ um, as a young child having to go to Egypt and then being brought out of Egypt. He's showing how Christ embodied the historical life of Israel as well as being Israel's savior. So in Christ, we have this complete fulfillment of the suffering servant of Isaiah. So not only is Christ representative of Israel as a whole, he is ta- he is a part of Israel and representative of Israel as a whole, but he is also the suffering servant, that individual on whom the right. sin of Israel rests and is atoned for. And what's really important about this is that you even see this not just in Matthew, but in the Old Testament, where the king is the representative of the whole nation. Yeah. Jesus Christ is the priest king to come, the Messiah. Okay, representative of Israel, who right when he comes at Hosanna and the wave of the palm, palm leaves at him, and mm-hmm. he gets inaugurated as king. Here, here you have also David when he gets the census done. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when he does the census, Israel suffers. Israel gets judged for David's decisions. Mm-hmm. So you also have a situation where it's like in reverse, where it's like whereas uh, David is literally the representative of Israel, yeah. just like Christ is the representative of Israel. Mm-hmm. So you have this, but in this case with Jesus, he's literally like the embodiment of Israel. It's much more different, right? But in the same way, whereas the king holds the keys to the, to the, to the punishments and the judgments and the peace of a nation, uh, Christ is the same way, mm-hmm. the suffering servant. So you have a, it paralleled in the New Testament and you have a precedent for this representation in the Old Testament. Yeah, and I I think Isaiah 49 goes a long way in clearing this up because it talks about the servant of the Lord. And when it starts out, you can see how 
you could go, okay, well, this could be talking about Israel as a whole corporately, but then very quickly it switches into, no, this is an individual tasked, an individual from Israel tasked with a, a God-given task. Yes. So let's read Isaiah 49. We'll start in verse one. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So you could be like, okay, well, that's personal language, but he did say Israel, so right. maybe this is corporate. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. Verse five. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. Boom. So now it's moved from this is Israel to this is an individual tasked with bringing Jacob back to God and gathering Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. Verse six, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So we see it move from Corporate, the servant is corporate yes. Israel, corporate Jacob, then down to a specific person who is tasked with bringing back the remnant of Israel and Judah and also being salvation for the Gentiles. Yes. So this is what Christ claims to be. And this is why the, the gospel of Matthew portrays Jesus as the embodiment of Israel but also the specific servant of God who yes. is tasked with calling back the remnant of Israel and Judah and also the Gentiles. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that the reason why, I don't know if anyone knows this, maybe you don't know, the reason why it's called the Forbidden Chapter in Judaism is because Isaiah 53 sounds an awfully lot like Jesus. Mm -hmm. So if you have not read that this week, I recommend that you do. It is was written 700 years before Christ was born, and it is awfully... I shouldn't even say awfully. It's just wonderfully powerful. Um, and it's it's so pinpoint that when you read it, it's like reading it's like reading a, a micro gospel to crucifixion uh, account. So I encourage you to do so. But I, Corey, I think that actually does a good job of summarizing Isaiah 53 and it's and it's um the nature of it. Basically. Yeah, I yeah. think so too. And I think like each chapter in Isaiah leading up to chapter 53 has yes. something to say on this. Like when you look at Isaiah chapter 50, for example, it contrasts the sin of Israel with the obedience of the servant yes. to God. Like they're different. Yes. Israel is sinful, but the servant is not. That's right. Right? So. That's right. Just, it's definitely worth a careful study. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Shall we move on to the big question? Let's do it. The long question, we'll call it today. It is big. It is long. <laughs> <laughs> it is a question. All right. Do you want me to read it this time? Sure. <laughs> All right. This is Today's big question is a viewer question. It is. It is. So let's do this. Let's read it. All right. I have some questions that I've been asking fellow churchgoers that I've yet to receive an answer I feel comfortable with. Now, I understand that these questions only have answers that cannot be proven with fact, but I will take a strongly guided opinion if I can find one. The first question slash statement that I'm currently struggling with is one that is very popular. And that is, if God was all loving and all good, why create sin? Now, to say man created sin doesn't resonate as God created man with the ability to sin. And being all knowing, knew that they would be in the condition to sin and would therefore commit sin. To say that sin is necessary in order to achieve the kingdom of God also does not resonate with me, as aborted babies are believed to go to heaven without having to go through the trials of this earth. If God was all good and can create a space where there is no sin, why would he originally not start with that plan instead of creating so much destruction? Mm -hmm. The argument to have faith perplexes me as if faith is the only reason why we are driven to believe such a bizarre complex that makes no rational sense 
Why does one then not believe in Bigfoot if it is simply faith that is guiding the belief? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very big question, a good question. And I can see that you're being honest with how you're wrestling with that. And I, I so appreciate that. Um, there, there's a couple things here. Um, first of all, I appreciate you explaining what you mean by, by faith in that you say um, faith, you're, you're comparing faith to rational sense. And you're saying if you, if you have faith, if you say to have faith, you mean that something can't make rational sense. And I would challenge that a little bit in saying that when you look at what the Bible means by faith, faith can make rational sense. Faith is trust. So why do I trust Matlock as my husband? I don't trust Matlock blindly. I trust Matlock because I know him. I know his character. And so I have formed the opinion that I can trust him. I mean, I'm married to him, so I trust him, <laughs> right? Now, it's possible that Matlock breaks that trust, breaks my faith, and that is a very difficult thing to reconcile. It can be reconciled, right? But in human terms, it's a very difficult thing. But it's the same way with God. So when we say that we have faith in God, it's not a blind faith in that I'm just saying that, that pe people should not be saying to you, just believe in God for no reason. Just believe that he has your best intentions in mind for no reason. That's not good. And I agree with you on that, that it's not fair. But I would say that I do believe a case, a rational case can be made not only for the existence of God, but also for his goodness and his lovingness. So we can look at a track record of God so that we can bridge the final leap of certain, certain things with faith, right. with trust specifically. And I, to add to this, like God is called faithful and all-knowing right. in the Bible. So this idea of having, she even mentioned it, how is he all-knowing? So you have knowledge is not incompatible. Omnipotence, is, sorry, omni, uh, uh, omniscience is not incompatible with faithfulness. Right. So you already have there. So if that's the case, then we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what is faith? You're talking about trust. You have evidence to trust somebody. Oh, man. And right? you may not always feel trust. Right. That's why faith isn't a feeling, right? Right. Because there are times where, because of my own insecurities, I may not trust you. Right. I may not have faith in your character. Right. But because I've made a promise to you to be faithful to right. you and to have faith in you, right. I will choose to trust you right. and to have faith in you. Right. Right? So it doesn't have to be faith can be a choice is what I'm saying. And I and we right. see that, I think we see that emphasized in, in the character of God as well, where he yes. is faithful. He chooses and to treat us. In a certain yes. way. Yes, and the important thing, again, so because I know earlier she was comparing it uh, with cannot be proven with fact, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's, it's just an opinion. Um, so this idea that faith is just a subjective, right. private thing that you have, and that you know the material world is the only public objective things that we have. Yes. Right? It's that false dichotomy, the fact-value distinction that's been made through, through scientism and stuff. That has essentially bred to this way of thinking. Right. Um, but, and I would ahead. say the the evidence for Bigfoot is very meager and based <laughs> off of people's opinions and experiences that have proven to be not very trustworthy. So to have faith or to have trust in the people who believe in Bigfoot is inherently a different thing than to have faith, to have trust right. in the character of God because there's so much history that has established a character of God. Uh, so I would say it is a different thing. But right. let's let's circle back around to this yes. creation of sin and evil. Yes. Now that we've kind of cleared up the faith thing, let's jump into the question proper, I think. Okay, so let's start off. So I'll reread it again. The first question that I'm currently struggling with is uh, very popular. If God was all loving and all good, why would he create sin? Right. Start there. So first of all, biblically, he did not create sin. And we're going off of the yeah. Bible. Now, I know that's what she, the greater context of what she means, but based on theology that we have, no one believes Bible, that, sorry, that God created sin. Right. We believe that man fell through free will voluntarily, and therefore sin entered the world through man. Right. Through 
voluntary transgression. So sin is is that which goes against the morality of God. Uh, yeah, it's it goes pr- against God. Also, it is other. Right, because what distinguishes sin from evil, sin is also, it misses the mark. It's purposelessness. It's not, it doesn't have a target. Um, so the, whereas like God, for example, we talked about doing uh, calamities and mm-hmm. disasters, um, does have um, a purpose for evil, mm-hmm. in other words, and for these things happening. Whereas sin is not that. It is, it's purposelessness, it's mindless, it's aimless, right? It's just floating above, it's not tethered to anything in, in, in particular. Um, and that's essentially what we have. Mm-hmm. That, that's our condition where we feel empty and we're and, and void and mm-hmm. meaningless. Mm-hmm. So that's that's important, that distinction there between the two. Now, I um, I appreciate her clarification here where she goes, now to say man created sin yep. doesn't resonate with me as God created man with the ability to sin. That is true. Yes. And being all-knowing, God knew that they would be in the condition to sin and would therefore commit sin. So God knew that Adam and Eve would sin, and yet he still created them. Right. Um, yes. Yes. yes, he did. And and so the first thing that I would say is I do still think it is very true that just to create beings that were that were not God himself was creating the potential for sin. Yes. Because sin is that which is other than God, that goes against God's will that goes against God's morality. So if he truly wanted to create a being or beings that were not him, but were but but were still something other than him, he would have had to have given that, like that, that just that opens up the potential. There. That potential right. is there for them to choose to not follow him, to go against his will, right? That's right. Because remember, God, God, like God could have created copies of himself but I think we could argue that God already has copies of himself, right? He's a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God right. the Holy Spirit. They're distinct persons, but their will is one, right? So God already has that relationship. So I don't think we can get around this concept that by creating another being that was truly free, it necessarily opened up the potential for sin. Now, you are absolutely right in saying that God Theologically, what we believe, what the Bible seems to teach, is that God knew that this was going to happen. Yes. He knew that sin was a thing. Yeah. Here's where I do think, you're probably not going to like this, but here's where I do think that the trust factor comes in, that the faith factor comes in, because God believed, because he did it, we can realize that God believed that it would be worth it. God believed that all of this crazy history of humankind and the world would be worth it in the end. But he didn't just leave us by ourselves to be like, well, I guess we just have to believe that. I guess we just have to trust that. What God has done throughout that crazy history of the world is he's interacted with mankind. He's revealed his nature. He's revealed how much he loves us. He's revealed that he is a God of righteousness, of justice, but also of mercy and love. And I believe based on the Bible and based on history, and even based on my personal interactions with God in my own life, that God has established his character enough that I can trust in his righteousness that I can believe him when he says that. So for me, that's where it hits. Yeah. How about you? Well, I think to even uh, here, uh, knowing that man would sin, yes, and perhaps it's impossible to create a world where they don't sin and stumble at some point. And this is possibly the best possible world that you could have uh, with the minimal amount of suffering and stuff, given that we are free world creatures. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting here is that the opposite side of this, because these are questions, but there's you know, stated as statements, essentially. There's not really question marks because it's, it's coming from an atheist. This is like kind of like a firm belief with these things. Um, but the moral basis to say, and, and 
I don't think there's I don't think there's logical compatibility with saying because God is immoral, therefore he doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I don't think those logically hold. Um, having said that, I don't think that there's a moral basis in atheism to say that, you know, um, okay, supposing so, – because the, the, the rationale of this argument is, okay, well, God, I don't need to believe in God because he's evil. It doesn't matter. Um, but supposing so there's no God. Okay, so there's is there good and evil now? So what we're saying is we're charging God with, with – with um, making evil, but then we're saying, so I don't believe in you. But now we're saying, okay, so then what's the, what is evil and what is good? Well, there's no point to it. What ends up happening is, in atheism, typically the, the, the common trend is that morality gets disbanded like it's not that important. Um, and it's just not really true. Like there's more re- reasons above morals and morals. There's not really good and evil. As we saw Dawkins and P.Z. Myers, you know, you can do whatever you want basically because there is no good and evil. There is no... A higher justice and judgment at the end of the day. Um, you're all just material, you know, uh, chemical stuff just moving around. And meaning itself, the question, the questions themselves don't exist because that's just meaning. There's there's nothing to them. They're not grounded in physical reality. So even to, to struggle with it is useless. Um, so what ends up happening is it ends up just becoming uh, like a very cold world uh, where goodness and evil just don't even really exist. So then the question kind of implodes in itself. It's like, why even ask the question? Well, I, I yeah. don't see even, do you see what I'm saying here? I don't see the basis to feel like, well, I feel like this is wrong. Well, that's just a moral, like you said here, it cannot be proven fact, just a guided opinion. It's just an immoral opinion. Well, if we all just have moral opinions, then, you know, the Nazis have a moral opinion. Which one's more, which opinion is stronger? So, the the issue really I think like conflates in itself. It's when you say when there's no say when there's no basis to say I don't want to believe in God because there's sin in the world. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that th- those two logically because God could have morally sufficient reasons to permit evil and suffering that are beyond a beyond our understanding because that's what God is. Yeah, and also for our own good, which people often don't think about. I, I want to I, I wanna bring up one more thing, but, yeah. but then I'd really like to segue into a personal experience Yes. to kind of take this question from a different angle. Yeah. But the, the one thing that I want to say first is that also keep in mind that God has limited every single human being's experience of evil and of sin. So when Adam and Eve fell and introduced evil into the world, when they introduced sin into the world, God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden and put an angel to guard the path to the Garden of Eden so that they would not have access to the Tree of Life and so live forever. With evil. This wasn't God being mean. Yeah. This was God having mercy on Adam and Eve mm. so that they wouldn't have to live forever experiencing evil and sin. So. Our human experience today, what's the most we can live? Like a hundred and a couple decades? That is an extremely limited time frame where we will experience evil and suffering. And I know there are people who experience much more evil and suffering than I have or probably ever will, but God has limited it. So I think that's something that often gets overlooked. Yeah, so in, that's a really good point. In this in this is that we see God's mercy where he's like, this isn't it. You, like the the, the psalmist talks about how, and, and, and the author of Proverbs and the authors of, author of Ecclesiastes, how men are like, men and women, we're like grass. We sprout up or, and we're like wildflowers. We sprout up and we bloom and the breath of God blows on us and we get swept away. And in Isaiah, I'm pretty sure it's in Isaiah, uh, the prophet says the righteous are taken away, meaning they die. And no one no one takes it to heart. No one thinks about it. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. That the righteous are taken away from the face of evil. Right. They are rescued from sin and rescued from evil. This is such a small moment of time and God's justice will make it right. Okay. Right. Now, I want to take this from a different perspective because I'm a mom. And I've had to struggle with this concept because in my generation, it is a very popular thing. And I know it's not just my generation, but is it a, it's a very popular thing for friends our age 
to contemplate having kids and say, you know what, I don't think I want kids because why would I want to bring kids into a world like this right. where they're going to experience suffering? And this is a question that I've had to think about deeply because we have three children. Mm. Had to think about this because I don't want my children to suffer. I, 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 I really don't. I made a new friend recently and she was telling me how um, she had a baby who when the baby was in utero, the doctors realized that she had multiple genetic conditions, like very bad, as in they didn't know how long she would live. Probably she might not even make it to delivery. And the doctors were encouraging my friend to abort. Um, but my friend doesn't believe in abortion. She's a Christian. Her and her husband didn't believe in it. They believe in life. They never knew. They're like, we never know what God's going to do. Right. We'll just, we're, we're, we're going to push forward. And so she did not abort. When her daughter was born, she had multiple genetic conditions that made survival impossible. So they made her comfortable and they gave her a really good life. And she lived for six months. And I was talking to my friend as a mom and just thinking like, yeah. How horrible Sorry, that must right. be. How awful. And and my friend smiled at me and she goes, you know what? There was a lot of pain, but she goes, there was so much joy. Right. She goes, my daughter had so much joy. And then she said to me, and this isn't it. This life isn't it. Her daughter experienced joy and experienced what we would call natural evil. She experienced suffering alongside that joy for her short six months here on earth. But there is more. That is what the Bible is telling us, that this is horrible, but it's for a time. You will experience great joy and you will experience suffering in life, but there is something else. Um, and, and, and God has deemed that that something else is worth it. Yes. And you, you think about, sad to this, because you think about in the world, the, the third world countries that suffer the most, these questions don't come up. This is not the question that concerns them. They, and they're the ones who are suffering the most. Mm -hmm. In a, a world that, in our first world, that suffers the least. Mm-hmm. We can have even access to like we can live a long life, eat as much food as we want, have fridge, have a fridge that we can put food in, everything. Suffer the least amount as possible mm -hmm. on this earth. This is the question that bothers us the most. How ironic is that? Very. It's like the people We're so adverse to suffering. We're so adverse to suffering. So it's like these questions, and while it's it they're important to grapple with, I don't all it does is when we say, I believe in my own answer to this question, even though the, this question itself cannot be answered in materialistic terms, mm -hmm. it implodes on itself because it doesn't help the sufferer or it doesn't give any hope or anything. It ends up just being, well, I don't want to think about it. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you're not actually answering the question. You're just simply saying there is no answer to the question. That's why there's no question marks. They're all, they're all, there's no question marks on any of these questions because there is no answer. Mm. And that's a very sad, sad thing. Mm. And like you're saying, there's hope in Jesus Christ. There's, and that was the reason why he hope. came. That's why he came, to mm -hmm. give us hope, to give us eternal life. That was the point of the atonement. So to, to look at it like Christ is working through humanity to redeem it continuously. He's currently doing that. He currently did do that. And he's currently working through us. So he is, it was, as it said here, why God originally do this? It's like he didn't originally do it. We voluntarily fell. But then he's also saving us from ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's, um, it, it's an unfortunate thing to allow our opinion to determine whether something's true or false. Because mm. that's not how true and false works. Because it says even here, uh, even we believe that these things are true. We have faith that these things are true. Uh, the, the truth exists regardless of what we believe. And, it's, and God has revealed that through evidence so that, we, so that we can know that we have, we can hold on to that truth. And I think that is how you get through 
the pain, the suffering, and the, and the trials of this world is that the truth is real mm-hmm. and it's a person and that he helps you get through it. And um, I don't know. I, I, I think that to me, there's, there's, a, there's a heart, there's a, a way of looking at things that has to change because to have no moral basis and yet challenge God on his moral basis mm-hmm. when you don't have any basis at all to challenge mm-hmm. him on, I don't think works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, there's no reason why. There's a famous uh, book by, um, I think it's Raymond Guess, philosopher. Is there a world without why? Basically, it's a very depressing book that there is no why to anything. Okay? Um, and this is the kind of world that the atheists desire, that there is nothing more and that you can do whatever you want. Um, there's nothing that's you're morally grounded. Even society, even if they want moral structure in society, there's no basis to say this society is greater than this society. This society has truths. There is no truth. There's no falsehood. There is no moral truth. That's for sure. So uh, I don't know if we can even give an answer under the conditions because the c- things cannot be proven as fact. There needs to be a sense that moral truth exists in order to even or a desire for moral truth to exist to receive a response that's going to edify someone's soul uh, in this. That's fair. I think that I think that's otherwise. I think that the basis of it it won't be helpful. Any a strongly guided opinion won't be helpful mm-hmm. because what's my how, how do you gauge that I have a strong opinion based on my emotional tone? How do we know that my opinion is stronger than someone else's opinion? Well, what, you're just the one gauging it all, so therefore you become the arbiter of truth. You become the arbiter of moral truth. Mm-hmm. And if you're the arbiter of moral truth, well, guess what? So are the Nazis. So were the commies that killed, that killed so many Like, just go down the list of history. Whoever is the arbiter of moral truth is saying that they're the judge of life and death. So mm. I, I, I find it, um, I, I find it's the overall worldview that, that approaches it. Now, I, I, I believe these questions are good. I don't want to undermine that. Yeah, I, I, I think, think they're these good. are very, and she's very honest yes. and sincere, and you can tell she's grappling with it. But there's a, there's a way of looking at things that needs to be understood. That it's not just a matter of, hey, here's an answer. Because you gotta wrestle with this stuff. Y- yes. And you, you got and, and and wrestling is a good thing. Wrestling is encouraged. I agree. And, and I think it's really interesting that the default disposition is, well, if I'm an agnostic, I'm gonna act like an atheist. If you're actually hold on, if you're actually agnostic about it and you don't know, why not try to understand the different views or not try to disrespect any views. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is you go down to the natural, when you're agnostic, you go down to your natural tendencies, which is pretty much virtually an atheist, but you're willing to listen mm-hmm. to the other side. Either, like, okay. I know this is an emotional argument. Yeah. What I'm about to say, it's not That's even fine. really an argument. But what I'm going to say is either way, we have to, we, we have to live with sin and we have to live with evil. Yes. And... The way that rejects that there is a God is just like, well, this is the way that it is, and then you die. Good luck. Yes. Very depressing. This way that I I believe has evidence for it is, yes, we experience sin. Yes, we experience evil and suffering. But God has said that it will be worth it. It'll be worth it. And it will be gone. He's deemed that it's it's... He's limited the amount that we can experience. And then there's more after this life is not all there is. And as a person who has experienced loss, as a mother who has experienced loss, that is so unbelievably helpful for me that I do not believe that this is just the way it is and then I die and then it's over. Right. There is hope for me. There is hope for the future. There is hope without suffering and pain. God's deemed that it's worth it. He's going to be, he's, he, he is with me as I go through it. And there's a track record. I'm not just believing in him like someone told me that Bigfoot exists. I'm believing in him because I've seen a track record proven through history. I believe there's enough evidence for me to, that, that this is a rational belief. And then the experiences that I've had with God in my own life are enough for me to say, no, when I'm going through suffering, I'm going to choose to trust. I'm going to choose to have faith in God and stay faithful to him because this isn't all that there is. Yes. So yeah, 
It's a really good question. It's a really big question. Lots of, um, lots of things to wrestle with, which is good. It is good. I know we have to wrap up. So I will say this is, a, this is basically a two-part question. I only took the first half. So we'll address the, the second half another episode. Fantastic. Right. I appreciate the honesty of this question, of yeah. these questions. It's good. Um, I will say the one thing that we did not directly tackle yet, I have it highlighted here just before we go, and we got to do this quick, is this one part here, and then we got to go. To say that sin is necessary in order to achieve the kingdom of God also does not resonate with me, as aborted babies are believed to go to heaven without going to the trials of this earth. Uh, if God was all good and can create space with no sin, why not originally start with the plan instead of creating so much destruction? So first off, I don't think he originally started with it. It's the whole idea. And I don't think that God needs free will. God necessarily if, creates an agent that's loving and necessarily needs – it has free will. This by, by nature, it has to have it. I think, what she means, I, I, th- I think what she but, means by this – sorry. Yes. I think what she means by this is I don't think sin is necessary – to show us how evil things are without God. Yes, oh, I agree. Yeah, okay. for sure. Yes. So I, I don't think sin is necessary. We're not saying sin is necessary, but sin will happen. Mm. I think it's the idea. It's not that God needs sin to happen. To teach us. To teach us. It's that, well, because we're free will beings who are not omniscient, not a God, you're saying copies of God, this just will happen. So as I said before, there's no evidence to say that this isn't the best possible world with the least amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and God is using it once again for all for our good and his glory. So the whole point behind this is that God actually has a plan and a purpose. Mm-hmm. And eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins immediately upon mm-hmm. accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior, which is continuously throughout, the, throughout time. So I think the dichotomy, though, to be clear here, yeah. is good. Okay. Uh, to, and- uh, sorry. 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 Specifically what she's addressing, as aborted babies are believed to go to heaven. Yeah. Right. This is a half-baked half baked thought right. on that. Um, because people often say, like, we need, as humans, we need the experience of sin and evil so that we won't sin in heaven. Right. And then so then the thought is, well, aborted babies don't sin, and yet they go to heaven. And uh, miscarried babies don't sin, right. and yet they go to heaven. So who's to say that they're not going to sin when they're in heaven, when they're in the presence of God? Half-baked thought here. Um, angels also have free will, and some of them fell, but some of them didn't. So it's not that everyone is going to experience it. Not everyone. with free- What I'm saying is I know angels are not the same as humans, but angels have free will. And not all angels chose to rebel against God. Yes. Some chose to stay with God. So in God's sovereignty, what does that look like with babies who are miscarried or babies that are aborted? Right. It's a question to think about. Half big thought, but yeah, no. not all, e- even if it's true that some of us need to experience sin and what it's like without God so that we stay with God, it doesn't mean all of us have to. Right. So it's at least no, a theory. It's a, it's a good one. That's, um, that's all I got. Yeah, I yeah. think that um, yeah, when it comes down to it, um, to say that sin is necessary in order to achieve again, it's not necessary. It just it's a matter of is it inevitable, right? Um, and as aborted babies are believed to go to heaven without having to go through the trials of this earth, um, you know, the the key part to here is that that as aborted babies are believed, God is in control here. Regardless of what we believe, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. God's good. God is just, and God knows what He's doing. He's going to judge things accordingly. Someone once asked a question: That are we adults in heaven, or are we still kids? Well, I don't know. But here's what. Yeah. Right. So supposing we're adults, right? God's going to trials. He knows what we would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So I don't know the full scope of how God's going to judge and how God's going to judge that process. Are these infants somehow adults? I don't know. My point in saying this is that um, it, regardless of what we believe or where a child goes, it doesn't really matter because God has that under control. And it's a hypothetical to use that as a basis to be like, the argument to have faith doesn't make rational sense. Um, because those aren't, these aren't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to say that I feel this way, therefore, this is the way it is. Right. Um, I don't think it's logically incompatible to have suffering and God doing it because you can have morally sufficient reasons for doing so. So, and, and, you know, for the suffering and evil that it's at play, he's doing, as I said earlier with the Clay Jones 
who's um, said that we and we have things in this world that we're doing uh, so that in, in the world we know we won't suffer. In this case, this is like a counter argument to that. Say, so, well, what about the people who don't suffer, like the, the babies? I don't have a good answer to that because, quite frankly, I'm not God and I'm not the final judge and I don't know all things. And it is a hypothetical question. It is not a belief. It is a question. And questions inherently are not answers. So if we have questions that aren't answered, we have to wait for the answer. Um, and I don't think you can use a question as a, a, a firm belief. I just don't think so. Mm. It's not a form of knowledge, especially because if these are all just opinions, then they can't be a basis for fact. They're all just opinions. That's, that's what she says. So if they're all just opinions, they can't be facts. So therefore, there's no reason to believe that these are anything. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah? Yep, I so, do. Yeah. Anyway, so that that would be my last thing. So I, that one's a tough one. I haven't. Yeah. There's a lot here, but it's worth exploring. There's a lot. There's a lot, and and some of it deals with the sovereignty of God. I would remind you of Acts chapter 17, where Paul is speaking in Athens, and he's talking about how God has appointed the times and the places where people live, uh, so that they might grope for him, reach for him, and find him. So check that out in Acts 17 when it because I think that pertains a lot to um, God's sovereignty when it comes to uh, babies and 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 things right. of that nature. God does have a lot more control than we in the West would like to give him. Uh, <laughs> but that's another story for another day. So we right. are at an hour. We have to wrap it up. Yeah. What do you guys think about all of these topics? What do you think about the big question, the problem of evil, all of these things? Please pop it down in the comment section below and until next week happy reading and happy studying thank you so much for watching we want to keep producing high quality biblical content but we can't do it without your support if you feel called to support us please click the link in the description under donate your support really means a lot to us